That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. And we're back in live. I'm Jimmy Krupka. This is Ski Racing This Week. I almost didn't have an episode for today. I had someone lined up for an interview the past couple weeks, and we kept missing each other, and then they went MIA. It was down to the wire today, but my good friend pulled through and agreed to do an interview on extremely short notice, and ladies and gentlemen, I give you Ted Ligety. <laughs> Wait, he's not on just yet. I've got to do the news. I'm Jimmy Krupka with these headlines. This week, the FIS Alpine Skiing Committee gathered virtually to discuss several topics, including the parallel controversy, which caused quite a stir last winter in the wake of vocal complaints from World Cup athletes. Proposals include changing it to double-run format and starting with a round of 16 instead of 32. If the committee made changes to address the safety of the event, those were not disclosed. The Swiss Ski Federation and Wengen's Organizing Committee are locked in an intense dispute over the future of 2022 Wengen World Cups. The Lauberhorn in Wengen is a classic downhill stop steeped in tradition. The organizing committee and Swiss Ski are concerned with the financial details, as the event is an expensive one to put on. Anna Veit, Veit, excuse me, the Austrian speedster formerly known as Anna Fenninger, announced her retirement live from Schladming on ORF on Saturday, at 30 years old, she has two Crystal Globes, three Olympic medals, and five World Championship medals. Though she defined a generation of GS and Super G skiing, she was never quite able to return to peak form last season following her third knee surgery in 2019. Italy's alpine skiing community proposed to the Fisk Council that the World Championships, scheduled to be held in Cortina in February 2021, be postponed to 2022. Cortina was to be the venue for the World Cup Finals in March before it was cancelled. Another last-minute event cancellation this winter would be a serious financial blow. The Fisk Council will make a decision on the matter July 1st. And note, July 1st is an important date for race organizers' decisions about the upcoming season. So stay tuned. We will know more then. Now, before we put these skis in the snow, I want to talk quickly about a sponsor of the show, a brand new sponsor. We've still got Sync and World Pro Ski Tour, but I'm very excited because the show is gaining steam and we've got a new sponsor. So today's show is proudly sponsored by the ADL Ski Club. The ADL is reinventing the ski club experience for the modern era with huge gear discounts and small pro-style trips to the classic World Cup races in Wengen, Kitzbühel, and Slotming, as well as deep powder adventures in Japan. Side note, um... They, I looked it up. They have, Jap they have two trips: Japao one and Japao two. Japao is something I have dreamed of for a very long time, and uh, well, I've got to get there at some point. And uh, big mountain skiing in Chamonix. Join them this summer at Mount Hood for their famous three-day adult race camp, coached by Olympic and World Cup legends Phil and Steve Mayer, June twenty-third to twenty-sixth. 
The ADL Ski Club is open to members worldwide. You can find all their info online at adlskiclub.com. So I did some research, as I said. The uh, the the camp at Hood is officially on. Um, their uh, Mount Hood is taking all the precautions, but they are open. And if anything with Corona, any restrictions get worse and the camp is canceled, it's 100% refundable. And they mentioned on the website that big names, Ted, Wybreck, usually show up. So there's that to look forward to. Anyway, I've got a great show for you today. As you already know, Ted Ligety, Olympic champion, world champion, and Mr. GS himself is on the phone to talk about basically everything. And we'll read the mail afterwards. So without further ado, Ted Ligety. Ted, thanks for taking my call. Hey, Jimmy. How are you? How's it going? Good. Uh, it's good to have you. Personally, I'm excited to have you on the show because uh, as I was a U16 learning to ski better GS, I basically just watched uh, you on repeat. Uh, <laughs> so um, there's there's that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and so just to start this whole thing off, because um, I am curious – Basic, basically, the question is, how did you get good? Because I know from stories that you weren't necessarily the best kid in the pack um, growing up, but that um, there was kind of a flip that was switched. Uh, did I say that? Switch was flipped. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like kind of like after your first year fist or something like that. So, like, w- what do you think it was that kind of put like? pushed you over the edge like that yeah i mean growing up in park city i was probably like the fourth or fifth best like 84 85 first year kid on my team so um park city ski team especially back then was probably like the best ski club so that wasn't like i was a bad skier or by any means but um was definitely getting my my butt kicked by like seven seconds by by some of the guys wow um and I would say it was like, yeah, my first, no, it was really my second year fist. So back then it was day two, it was second year day two. I only did one fist race my first year fist. Uh-huh. I didn't qualify for any of the fist races before that. And then um, my second year fist just like started making a little bit of progress. But like I won the J, like Western JOs, but like the top seven probably best kids my age were all U.S. Nationals, so that wasn't necessarily, like, a huge accomplishment, Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess it wasn't really until, like, I made the ski team that I had a big switch. I mean, I, like, I had a big, big year when I was uh, second year J1, where I started doing well in some NORAMs and and whatnot, um, and was, like, making progress and just starting to ski well, but... um, I like made the ski team by like they made the development team by the skin of my teeth, and then uh-huh. I think mean, that's really when I like made the big jump. Like Jimmy Cochran always used to make fun of me when we first were on the ski team. He's like this. He said that I would never be anything because my boots were too high the year I made the ski team, <laughs> <laughs> and then I made it just kind of on a fluke. And so we'd always kind of have a laughing joke about that, but. Yeah. Um, I think back on the like Parsley ski team, we like skied on the World Cup hill from like 
from Thanksgiving on, uh-huh. and it was always like gnarly, battered ice, and it was like bumpy all the time. And it wasn't really until I was on the ski team, we skied on like some more like moderate terrain, but I like, figured out how to go fast. Like it, skiing on like that gnarly terrain made me like a good technical skier, but I never figured out how to go fast. Okay. Until like how to generate really, speed. We actually, yeah, how to generate speed until we were actually training before the Norams, the beginning of the year in uh winter park there's like i don't know if you know winter park there's like the bunny hill we like that was the only place we could train was in the bunny hill and just like it clicked where i just figured out how to like push hard and like generate speed out of the turn uh-huh. and ended up like skiing woke up right after that and going from 300 in the world to 40th in the world and and whatnot but i think That's sick. that was all like built on like the foundation of i think it was ultimately good for me in like my long-term development that I did get my ass kicked until I was 18, 19 years old. Yeah. Um, because I like fostered that hunger and drive. Yeah. Yeah. So I was told by, um, a lot of my coaches when I was growing up that Ted Ligeti just free skied and free skied and free skied. Is that true? Is that, was did that help you get better? Um, yeah, so like after we went to learn sports school, so we would go to school April to November, and so we train like every morning all week long if we weren't going to races. And after training, like we get lunch, and I would just go like rip around free skiing. I had a few friends, and we'd go free free ski around. We'd like hit a few three sixties up the little jumps, but just like go rip around. Like we do like kind of judged contests on who could lay it over the furthest like trying to like drag around hits in the snow and just like skied for hours after actually training so i think that was a big part of my, my development was just like getting a ton of miles and just playing on my skis like not trying to like be deliberate and going out and doing drills like i hate doing drills actually <laughs> i'm not really a believer in, in 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 drills i'm not a believer in anything that's not if you're not doing something locked on an arc, then you're not actually feeling it in a real sense of what it's going to do to your skis. So like uh-huh. we would just go out and like arc turns and play on our skis and like just. And that's how you learn to hip drag. About, yeah. And that's like, that's partly, <laughs> partially how I like developed the angles I have is like, we would just like have these like fun judge between our friends, like arc off on who could, lay it over the furthest and I was always pretty good at that I could like get it so I was you know basically parallel like almost armpit like hand above my head on the snow and so that's a big like a big part of like how I learned how to ski like that and also yeah. those years were like also the first couple years of carved skis so like going from straight skis from my oh, entire yeah. life until I was really 16 like getting on carving skis which would look like straight skis today <laughs> by these yeah. things but something that could actually arc was like so much fun to go out and like explore the mountain and you know lay it over on like a clean edge yeah. and just start playing with those feelings was was huge and i think that was like a big part of my development outside of the gates was i could just like go out and like play on my skis and then that gave me more awareness of what body positions did what on the snow and and whatnot. Gotcha. So 
I kind of have an unrelated question, but you mentioned how you made the D team, and I have a or I saw a video on YouTube. There's a clip of you and and Sasha Rierick and the whole D team squad um, learning Tai Chi. So was that legit? Did, that, yeah. did you learn anything from that that was helpful for skiing? Yeah, my first year on the team, we did Tai Tai Chi. Um, it made me a much better wrestler. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like I think it was like good body awareness and it was like good mindfulness. Um, so that was like that was that part of it was was good. Um, like I have seen that like that YouTube Tommy who is our uh, teacher. Mm-hmm. He definitely like likes to take a lot of credit, I guess, for like my waist steering or whatever he calls that. Waist steering, so, yeah, that's the video. I yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if uh, if that was really a big part part of it, but I'm definitely better at wrestling now because of it. Nice, <laughs> nice. That's that's all. That's pretty funny. Um, so you you uh, out of nowhere. Um, I mean, I'm sure you believe in yourself, but out of, basically out of nowhere, you won the 2006 Olympics, uh, the combined in, in Torino. Um, what was, was there anything special about that day? Like, did you know that, that it was kind of like a good day for you? That year leading up to it, I was at, at like, came, come to Olympics, I was ranked second in the world in Spalm, so I was. Oh, you were? Amongst the fact. Yeah, so I was, oh, okay. like, I was amongst the faster guys in Psalm, so I knew, like, in that portion of the race, and especially back in those days, the, the combined was obviously two runs of Psalm, so yeah. that, like, gave me more hope, and that season we'd had a few super combines where it was just one run of Psalm, and I was 10th in both of those, and, like, in one one of them I was, like, 50th after the downhill run, and won the Psalm run starting the 50s, and we got 10th, another one. I was like in the top three in the fall and run. So I knew like in that sense, like I had a good chance also because they, uh, they ran the first run of fall not based on your time in the downhill, but based on fall and points. So like all those things were like, I knew were good advantages for me being more of a fall skier, but I still thought it was like a hope and a prayer and a miracle to actually like, make it all work to, to win it because mm-hmm. at that time Bodie was skiing was the best in the world in downhill and skiing, you know, the best in the world in fall when, when he put it down and Benny Reich was, you know, one of the best in the world in fall and was able to be top five in downhills here and there. So mm-hmm. I knew it was like a really, really off chance. Um, and what's like funny about that, like, especially cause that was like a normal daytime, downhill and then a night slalom was there was like four or five hours until we had our slalom run so like i was like 30 seconds after the downhill and i think i was like three seconds out but like i was only a second and a half off benny and um and Bodie is obviously a way ahead but like the other guys who were metal contenders i was like actually yeah, like that's doable if like i yeah. crazy good and and all that but still like not at all like a reasonable like a high probability thing so i just like went out and hammered that first round of fall and i was starting second and i came down the finish like one and a half seconds ahead of marcus larson who was also a fallen skier who beat me in the downhill run i was like uh he must have messed up like 
that couldn't have been that good of a run. And it turned out it was a good enough run to make me go from 30 something place to third. And then like, I remember sitting there and spinning with Bodie and he had actually just, when we were spinning, he got disqualified and actually he wasn't that bummed about it, but he was like, you, but like you can, he was giving me like the pep, pep top nice. talk and pump up. And I was like sitting there like, I can't believe I am in like a metal position. Like that's unfathomable. Cause you're, like, you're 21 years like, old. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, like my friends will be blown away back home. They're like, <laughs> I, if I won a medal and then I was like, okay. And I got super nervous and I was like, okay, what I like, can't think about this anymore. Like I, I, I don't have a medal now, so if I go to bed tonight without a medal, it's fine. It's like, it was still a cool experience. Like, I'm just not going to think about it anymore. And was somehow able to uh, push that, push that out of my mind and um, was obviously super, super nervous, but was able to just like, you know, have a, a nonchalance about it that mm-hmm. let me ski hard and um, that next run and ski fast enough to end up being able to win. So it was like, yeah, to win, to win a, win the Olympic gold medal at 21 years old and to, for it to be, you know, a dream come true that early in my career was, was pretty amazing. I mean, I, yeah. I, that gold medal, I still like pinch myself about because it was, it was just so crazy. And my parents were there, so I saw them right away and, um, I think they were equally as blown away by it as, as I was. Yeah, I'm sure. Shocked, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just were yeah, still to this day. Like, I still like think it's like pretty, pretty crazy just because how unexpected it was and yeah, and how early you know achieving that dream came true. Yeah, were your parents uh, ski racers? No, my parents like my parents are both like recreation decent recreational skiers. So. Okay. My dad's from Connecticut and my mom grew up in between Indiana and New York. So, um, not ski country. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So they didn't really get into skiing more until they moved out to Utah later in life. So, um, they, cool. they like, never, I think that's like one key thing for me too, was like my parents didn't push me into skiing at all. Like that was a hundred percent something I wanted to do on my own. And my parents, I was a better skier than my parents by the time I was probably six years old. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was never like something like they coached me at or pushed me into. And, um, in a way actually it was like school was far more important and skiing was like my reward for doing well at school and like not being a F up, you know? Huh? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I always treated that way. It was a reward to be able to go out and ski and have fun and like, and not have to, I got was good enough or dedicated enough that my parents didn't weren't like pushing me to go get a job or they'd let me go to winter sports school or whatever it was like that. So um, I always like treated it as a treat, but it was like something I owned and was uh it was like up to me to to make it my own thing and and uh, get better at it or not get better at it. And so I never felt like that pressure from them. And I think if I did, I would have I would have resisted that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Well, so after the fall, after you won that that uh, that medal in 2006, you started Shred, um, which started out with just goggles and helmets, and then it, it was Slytech with the with the arm guards and shin guards, and then it's all together now. 
at one big company um, with uh, with uh, Carlo Silmini. So how did you get this opportunity? Did you did you find this guy to start the company with, or did he find you? How did it work? So Carlo, who who's my partner in Shred, he was was or is a materials engineer and. He was like still ski racing when I first met him on my first year on the US ski team, actually. And he was like, he's like an okay European college racer. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Cochran, I'm a school as an engineer, and he saw Carlo there with these like rad, this is before anybody had carbon fiber shin guards or anything like that, these rad custom carbon fiber shin guards. And so, we started talking to him about those and he made us some prototypes and, um, started making us like prototyped, um, carbon fiber shin guards and arm guards basically out of his garage. Um, and so we developed a relationship through that, through that he started fly tech mm-hmm. and we just formed a friendship after Olympics. I was on UVEX at the time and like, I was always into free skiing and like going on, powder and hitting jumps and all that and like I hated that like should be have to like think back in like the early 2000s like there was so much like especially in the commercial side of things animosity from free ski to snowboarding to yeah. ski racing and all that that like I you felt like a tool if you're like go out and free ski and your UVX stuff <laughs> <laughs> and I thought like and there was if you were to be in a free ski oriented company, those goggles had such a narrow field of view that they didn't work ski racing and they didn't want to touch ski racing as it was anyways. I was like, mm-hmm. there is a need for a brand that like embraces all those things and can make a product that like works across the board, which because like the benefits of a wide field of view benefit all the different aspects and the, yeah. and all that stuff. And then, so that was really the impetus for, for starting Dread. Um, and I, Carlo was in Park City. We were on a mountain bike ride, and I was telling him about, about this idea. And he's like, I know of a place that we could make goggles. And we shook each other's hands. We, like, I sent him Microsoft Paint, uh, like, artistry of, like, what the logo might look like. And uh-huh. we, like, played around there, like, very newbie. And that fall, we, like, he got me some prototypes for Portillo and we like kept doing some iterations and we launched that, that winter. So, um, you know, very like naive, like no business plan, just like (laughs) trying to create something cool and just running with it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's how it started. Really just four goggles. It was just like four, one frame, four different colors. Uh, like old school Argyle is, uh, yeah. And then then it took off. Yeah, and it actually like, that was the first year that it did really well. Like people were people were hungry for something like that. Like I was describing, people were hungry for something that was like not old school lane ski racing. Yeah. And fun that so it, it took off then and um yeah, I mean we started doing helmets a couple years later. Um, Carlo being an engineer, like we started getting more and more into like creating our own proprietary tech parts of it and so you know really grew from being kind of an immature company with you know just trying to piece it together to now like 
you know, having patents and, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's a serious, serious, serious thing where we're doing a lot of, you know, product innovations and, and stuff like that. So it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing to like look back at, at what it's catalog to what we're doing nowadays and, you know, working with MIT on lens technologies and, and stuff like that. So it's, yeah. it's been cool to be part of that journey, but it really like, it really started from, you know, this little idea and just like the two of us, like I used Jimmy Cochran's truck to, to go pick up like the first imports in the U S and they're in my attic <laughs> in park city. And I had two of my friends when I was gone doing logistics, like boxing, boxing stuff up and then he just stopped or boxing stuff up when people bought off, off the website. So we're like, it didn't start in my garage. It started in my attic. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, pretty, that like, is very, cool. Uh, so I was looking funny. at your at your Wikipedia page, and I came across like two lines about another entrepreneurial project you did um, called the Mount Holly Ski Club. But I guess it went bankrupt. <laughs> what, what was that? Uh, so it's actually it was a ski before, and then mm. these develop, real estate developers bought it, and they're trying to do like a Yellowstone Club. Gotcha. type of thing like a private um, ski area that, yeah private ski area it actually would have been cool um but that was like right in the lead up to the financial crisis and uh, all that so that uh obviously blew up and those guys were also it turned out to be like doing some nefarious i guess like investing or lending practices so that did yeah. all didn't that uh all blew up and but so, you didn't yeah, get was, caught up in it um, no, I mean, I was, like, one of the creditors that didn't get anything out of it, yeah. <laughs> I guess, like, yeah, so, yeah, I got, I guess, screwed on that deal, but, uh, I mean, that's how it goes, um, so, yeah, that's, like, you live, you live and, live and learn, and, um, yeah, so, yeah, is that, gotcha. that's still on my Wikipedia page, huh? I, don't, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun, I, oh. your, your Wikipedia page, I, it may have been written by a foreigner, some of it, because there's some like uh, these like synopsis of your seasons, and it's really interesting yeah. sentence uh, construction. So, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> the season that I wanted to talk about a bit more was the 2012-2013 season when you you came out and sold and won by like 1.5 in the first race, and then you proceeded to keep winning by like. 1.5 to two seconds the whole season in, in GS. Like what? It, it was 2.7 in Solden. Oh, it was 2.7 in Solden. Oh my. I think it was 1.5 the first run. That's what it was. No, I was in second place after the first run. Oh, you were. Okay. So I didn't, I'm, I didn't win the, I didn't win the first run actually. I'm getting mixed up here, but all I know is it was stupid yeah. amounts of time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, what, just, what happened that, that, uh, that off season? Like what? It was the first year of the 35 meter skis, right? Yeah, I think that was the biggest thing that happened. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. the first year of 35-meter skis. I started skiing on them midway through. I mean, actually, even somewhere before we even had them. So when they announced, so when they first like made the rule change, they announced it'd be 40 meters. Uh-huh. And some of us like skied on some 40-meter skis, and it was like a joke. Like, they're unskiable. Yeah, that's absurd, yeah. Um, yeah, so like I think the just quickly realized that, like that was going to be unworkable and then we started like head started making 35s and we like 
started testing him basically a whole year before um, we had to race on him. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of iterations on him and like started a lot of miles and um, was already like tweaking the setups to try to like figure out how to optimize that. And I think because of that, like I like figured some things out early on compared to other people, but I think also they matched up really well with my style and technique because um, they required like a little bit longer and cleaner turn shape and more angles and, and stuff like that. So like matched up better with my technique. Um, and with those, like you saw in the years since then, like those skis, like when you'd make a mistake, when it was the 27 meter skis before, they might only cost you like three tenths because you could like, work the ski and get back up to speed really quickly or like mm-hmm. recover quickly from the mistakes. Whereas like whenever you scrub speed on the 35 meter skis, it was like a half a second to a second gone instantly. So when you're on top of your game and like making clean turns the whole way and being able to develop speed, you could develop huge margins on guys because what would normally be, you know, seven tens worth of mistakes previously turned out to be two seconds worth of mistakes. Um, yeah, on the 35, so like that enhanced the margins for sure. Um, so that was like that's part of it. So, like, yeah. I don't think like I was skiing amazing, and I was actually, in some ways, I consider the year before like my best year, even though I was second in the GS title the year before. I won eight or nine out of the 18 World Cup runs that year, so like the highest wow. percentage World Cup wins for the year ever in my career, but I also had a couple of DNFs, which ended up taking yeah. me out of the title. So, yeah, that's how it works. Um, yeah. But like, just like the way those skis work, it just, it just exacerbated all the margins and, mm-hmm. and all that. And I think that's, that's a, a big piece of like why there was, you know, big margins in races. So what's the most fun you've ever had skiing? Was that it? Was that that season where you like won the world championships by like one point or whatever? Um, yeah, I mean, I, that was obviously my best season ever and world championships that year was unreal. Three gold medals. Yeah. This doesn't sound funny, but like, it's hard to like believe this, but it's also like one of my, like probably one of my frustrating, most frustrating times in my career too, leading up to that, is I was, that was like my year that I was closest to being able to win the overall title too. And I was, you know, coming into the middle of January, I was leading the overall and my binding got ripped off my ski and banging combined when a couple of gates in the finish and would have been second there. Like it was a year that like in the middle of the season, I, I felt like I blew having the overall. And so like, and that was actually what prepared me well for the world championships is like I was going for the overall that year. And then the overall was like ripped out after like two combines of having really bad luck. And then a couple of bad fall races. And then all of a sudden I was like, all right, overall is out of my mind. I'm not even like think about that anymore. So I like skipped the Moscow race and a couple of like things before that. And was like, okay, just going to go like train some super G and, uh, get ready for the world championships and like not worry about the overall anymore. And I think that's, uh, hmm, yeah, that ends up like, or not. Yeah. 
for just focusing on the world championships was like ended up being the thing. And Schladming also was like a hill that was very complimentary towards me for for speed and and tech. So um, I guess it all all ended up working out. Yeah. It's, well, it certainly worked out. You got you got three gold medals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these days you're married and you've got a kid. Uh, how, how old is he now? Uh, Jackson's almost three. Okay. And so Bodie made some infamous comment uh, when he when he uh, commentated for the Olympics, um, and he and he apologized for it after. But he said getting married and having a kid can slow a racer down. So. Um, are things different with a kid? Like, I, I, I'm not expecting you to say your kid slowed you down, but like, how are things different? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, life when you have a family is far different than life when you're 25 and you don't have a family. Yeah, um, it's just more of a, like you have to do more balancing acts. That's for sure. Like, you can't be 100 percent of everything 100 percent of the time. That's like a fact of life. Um, so yeah, you just have to like make time to do all the different things and that's like that takes compromise and balance and all that and that, mm-hmm. but i mean i don't have unlimited resources like a Federer or Djokovic and all those guys they like go on and play their best have the best year of their career after a family but uh you know i've like this year with going to giant fall only i was a one way to manage that with the family and also my body and um you know like balance all that work-life balance um, with how much you need to travel as a ski racer because basically since I was 19 years old, I've been gone from essentially like August until April because I go home for a couple weeks here and there, like a week here and there between camps, but I was gone pretty much that entire time. That's obviously impossible once you have a a kid. Jax was traveling with me for the for the first couple of years of his life, but that became more challenging for, for him and, um, my wife, especially and me and all that. And it just wasn't like best for, for our whole family situation. So mm-hmm. not having them travel is, was, was important, but obviously it's not workable to, and not something I want to do as a dad to be gone all that, that, that amount of time. So, um, yeah, it's just like, a, it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think as a European, it's obviously a lot easier from being from North America, uh, is not easy, as easy for sure. If you could, if we lived in Austria and I could drive six hours back and forth, that would make life a million times easy, but easier, but instead yeah. I got to drive six hours to an airport and then, and then 12 hours home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is Jack's going to ski race? Uh, I don't know. I want Jax to be a good skier. I don't expect, or like, you know, if he wants a ski race, I'm happy if he wants a ski race. Uh, my wife would not, doesn't like, she like sees the sport from my side, but like also traveling with the ski team, like also like the harder, more realistic side of the sport. So yeah. she's not super fond of, of the idea of him being a ski racer, but I want him to ski race until for like a couple of years just so he's like a good skier and yeah. has those fundamentals. And I think there's a lot of good lessons learned from ski racing. And, um, and so like skiing is a great, like lifelong skill. It's the one sport you can play or go do with a grandfather to, a, um, 
I want yeah. him to be a good skier in that sense. If he wants to be a ski racer, then I'll support him. If he doesn't, then I'll support him in that as well. So um, it'll be it'll be his choice. Yeah, I like that answer. So you mentioned that uh, you you only ski GS this season, but you also skied uh, dual paneled slalom uh, on the World Pro Ski Tour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a sponsor of the show, really. What's that? I said pretty unsuccessfully too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was your best result? Uh, well, I only did, I had two of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Fourth in, was my best. So was, I guess that's the semifinals. Um, mm-hmm. And then knocked out in the first round the other one. So they're actually fun. I mean, the World Pro Ski Tour is great. Um, it's great to have like an alternative to World Cup and um, to have more pro-level skiing in the United States, I think is really important for our sport. Um, and yeah, the, the dual formats is so different. Like I've raced some of the duels on the world cup and it's just, it's a different beast obviously when you have somebody next to you and you know, you're normally used to like the little clock there it's saying 10 seconds and you go whenever you want. Um, whereas, you know, it's definitely a different routine when you're, yeah. when it's, uh, when, you when it's know, just like ready go it's so you know the start is so important in those two because yeah. they're short as it is so you can't lose a lot of time on on mistiming a start so all those things make it a make it a different beast for sure and and the skiing definitely takes an adjustment it's and it's competitive i mean that's what's cool cool about it is that like i wasn't able to go in there and like waltz in and dominate yeah. That it was a challenge, I think, is is a testament to how uh, how challenging they are. Yeah. Do you think it was hard? I know you've been you've kind of criticized uh, dual slalom and and cross blocking the gates. Um, where yeah. do you stand on that? And and you didn't cross block at at the World Pro Ski Tour, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't cross block. I am ardently against cross blocking. Yeah. I, um, I think that's like one good thing generally about the world pro ski tour is that it's a little bit more offset it there's definitely situations where you can advantageously cross block but it's not like world cup um where cross blocking is like a must have it's like the only way to win yeah therefore yeah and therefore you need to be six four taller in order to make you know the geometry of that all work um so yeah i think they're even in the rural pro ski tour, I think we should uh, explore ways and whether it's snowboard gates or different things to to make that less less of a thing. Um, but in World Cup, especially like being this World Cup, they need to figure out a way to to even that out, especially that it's uh, overalls and all that stuff are on the line. So um, yes, very very much against uh, against cross blocking dual gates. Gotcha. Well, you heard it here first. The statement's out. And I, I saw on uh, the ski racing website that uh, people's uh, concerns, athletes' concerns about the safety and the format of parallel um, have been taken into account for next year. So we'll see what that actually means. Um, but speaking of next year, um, you're 35, almost 36. So I have to ask, is this your last season? Because I know you've been dealing with troubles with your back. Um, or are you shooting for one more Olympics two years from now? Uh, at this point, I guess I'm shooting for the Olympics. <laughs> nice. Um, 
yeah, I, if I was if I was going to go this year, I was going to go the next year. It kind of seems silly to like stop the year before the Olympics, so mm-hmm. go through then and then definitely be done. So, thirty seven, I'd definitely be an old guy at the Olympics. But yeah. um, my actually my body's been feeling better this year than it has in probably the five years prior to this. So that's good. Um, you know, the body like stays tracking in a good way, and um, the things I do to like make it feel good and, and work it well, then, um, then yeah, hopefully it should work. If like, if my body falls apart and all that, then I guess I'll revisit, revisit things, but trying hard to, uh, persevere and try to preserve the body in a, in a way that it's, uh, I'm able to push hard in, in races and not have to like be battling through pain. Yeah. So we did a segment on GS back on this podcast a few weeks back but I'm curious what your methods are for, for staying healthy and keeping it feeling good. Uh, one thing I started doing the last couple of years was foundation training. So I don't know if you know what that is, but you probably like... I, I've seen it. It's a pretty goofy guys, like, looking thing. Yeah, you guys probably are in the gym like River and like George were saying they'd see me like across the gym doing it, like wondering what the hell I was doing. <laughs> yeah. And now, that, now they're sold on it too, but... Yeah. It's just like posterior train training. It's like a lot of isometric posterior train training, but then like kind of following that method throughout the rest of my training where I'm doing, you know, for every anterior, so like quads, abs, whatever exercise, I do three on the backside. So three hamstring, glute, or back exercises, if, you know, corresponding to the front side. So just trying to, you know, do three times the amount of posterior chain training as, as the front side and just trying to keep the body aligned and stacked that way and, um, you know, mm-hmm. keep the hips loose and stuff like that. So that's been, like, a really big shift in my training. I always did, like, back work and stuff like that, but never until I just had constant back issues that I had to, like, search for ways to, you know, combat that. I was, like, mm-hmm. I've tried so many different, like, random things over the years that didn't really work and this seems to be working well and you know a lot of read a lot of books and a lot of trial and error and found something that seems to work so far so um gotcha and sticking with that (laughs) yeah and people can uh can find it's called foundation training if people want to look it up uh yeah like so foundation core book i guess you'd like look on amazon i don't know exactly mm. foundation is, is like the name of the book gotcha but okay. there's a lot of foundation books out there <laughs> but um so foundation is like obviously the i don't know if I'll, i'm a science fiction fan so i isaac asimov's books the foundation is <laughs> is probably the first thing that comes up but if you go foundation back then you can find it on there okay youtube like foundation back also there's like some good youtube videos but um I found those like those really helpful. Nice. So uh, we're nearing the end, and I just have a few questions left. Um, the first is a question I ask um, everybody on the show, and oh, I gotta remember to, uh, to 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 tally it all up again. But Eastern Mountains or Western Mountains? Western Mountains, obviously. <laughs> I know. Most most of the time when I when I ask it, I know exactly what the uh, guest is going to say, but I just figured yeah, that's, I'd that's ask. Yeah, not very surprising. Yeah. Has anybody said the opposite of what, where are they from? Um, no. There have been some 
uh, <laughs> some people who have had to make tough choices because they're transplants one way or the other. Um, yeah. But, but I guess you're in that boat. So you, Easter West. Well, I'm an unbiased journalist here, so I can't, I can't make a call. Okay. Yeah. You're impartial, I see. Yeah. I'm, I'm the last true, um, unbiased journalist. The rest of the media is, uh, yeah. is totally divisive <laughs> and skewed, but here I am keeping, poli- uh, keeping ski racing, um, unpoliticized. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, and the last question is, um, is if there's anything, since you gave me your time, I figured I'd give uh, you some of mine and, and, uh, is there anything you'd like to talk about briefly, like any projects you're working on, anything you'd like to promote? Um, no, I don't, I don't have a, we, we talked about shred. I mean, that's, yeah. that's my, that's my like focus, I guess, uh, outside of, uh, outside of ski racing. So, I mean, check that stuff out. We make mountain bike stuff. It's mountain bike season right now. So, um, you can find our mountain bike stuff online. Uh, that's a, that's a good way to go cross training right now. Mm. Especially in this these times, getting out mountain biking is a good way to, to socially distance and, and get your fitness in. So there you go. That's there's my plug. <laughs> nice, I like it. So we yeah. um, is there is there any advice to wrap up that you would give? Basically, um, what's the secret to GS? What's the secret to GS? Um, <laughs> the secret is like finding like your own timing and cues to be able to make like confident clean turns i think that's the hardest part i mean with any event timing and like mm-hmm. how to like consistently time your turns well i think is like the hardest thing but like so people always like when they see my skiing they like see like my arm swings but like and they think that's like oh i gotta like swing my arm through the turn but that's like as much as like a body position thing, it's like a timing cue for me. And I think like having a timing cue is, is really important. Um, because if you can time your turn well, where you're not, you can go hard and you can like choose the turn, then you can be fast turn after turn. But if you're late or too early, then you're always like double turning, double hitting and never getting like the full power out of the ski. So I think, Mm -hmm. That's the secret of GS and any event, really. But uh, yeah. So so now I'm uh, now I'm curious, and I and I have a question that really suits me personally. But a lot of people talk about this as well. But have you ever gone through the experience of quote unquote forgetting how to ski GS, where your timing's all off and you just feel like nothing works? How do you go about solving that? Um, I mean, maybe I feel like that for the last couple of years. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think there's always like, it's, I think going back and like training some like easier stuff is always a good way to like treat that. I think free skiing is all, is a good thing. Like going out and like free skiing groomers, which like mm-hmm. for you and I over in Europe, like it's often like hard to go like get free ski miles in cause it's either there's nowhere to free ski or it's like ice balls or powder balls or it's like they don't groom very well over there for the most part so yeah. like it's hard to like go out there and like lace turns but i think lacing turns on groomers and like feeling dark again in a way that's like you're not under the kinds confines of gates i think is a good way to like get that timing back as well mm-hmm. gotcha so it comes back yeah. to free skiing yeah well ted yeah 
I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I thought that was a great interview and um, it's huge for the pod. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And no worries. Well, huge thanks to Ted for taking that call at the last minute, um, even though he was driving. Um, I can assure you he was driving safely and uh, did not have the phone in his hand. Before we get to the mail, uh, I want to talk to you about the World Pro Ski Tour. And if you listen to the podcast, you know the World Pro Ski Tour is the premier parallel, dual-format, slalom-racing, high-octane, as I always say. And if you're missing ski racing right now, go to worldproskitour.com, and they've got all the content you need to get your ski racing fix. As well as Sync Performance. So that's S-Y-N-C performance.com. Go there and use the code SRPODCAST20 to get 20% off your next purchase of high-quality gear designed by, designed for, tested by uh, high-level ski racers. But it's not just for ski racers, so check it out. Now let's get to the mail. First, an Andrew reached out to me after listening to my Floral Wax episode. He's at a wax company and tells me that they're testing ceramic ingredients that apparently approached the speed of high fluoro. A Steven emailed me. He really enjoyed my slalom history episode, suggested I do weekly segments on ski racing history. Great figures, great events, great moments. I love that idea. I think that we're all ski racing history deprived, uh, but I'm not a historian. So the segments probably won't come weekly, but I'm already scheming. Steven, don't you worry about the next history segment. He also sent me an old article that talks about how skiing as a sport may have been invented in Australia. Now, I may need to delve into that one. It's, it, it says 1861. It has something to do with Norwegian miners in Australia. So, very interesting story. If anyone knows more, contact me. But I think we need to do a segment on the invention of ski racing. Now, a Rick says that he listens to uh, my podcasts when he runs, and he seems to run faster uh, when he's listening to my podcasts. So <laughs> I appreciate that uh, compliment, Rick, and keep running fast. And finally, a David asked me that when I talk to World Cup ski racers to ask what they consider most important in their skiing, as in like skiing technique. So David, I love it. It's added to my list of must-ask questions. Now, I know I in, in all these, these male readings, I, I make a lot of promises, and I talk about segments I want to get to. And for those of you who are disappointed in me, and if I have not um, done what I promised, or if there are segments you still want me to do, don't you worry. I have a massive list of notes on my phone. Sometimes an idea just strikes me and I have to write it down. So I've got the list and we will get to everything. Don't you worry. We have weeks and weeks ahead of us and there is so much ski racing to get to. So we will get there. But until then, next Thursday that is, 
Stay healthy and dream of skiing. I'm Jimmy Kripka. This is Ski Racing This Week, Ski Racing Media's official podcast. See you later.